Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Eddie Bruce Jones, a legal academic and anthropologist based in London. He is the deputy dean at Birkbeck School of Law, the author of Race in the Shadow of Law, State Violence in Contemporary Europe, and serves on the board of directors of the Institute of Race Relations and the UK Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group. He's on the advisory board of the Center for Intersectional Justice in Berlin and the editorial board of the Journal of Immigration, Asylum, and Nationality Law. He's also an essays editor at the literary magazine, The Offing. His research and writing and this conversation focuses on racism, sexuality, colonialism, migration, state violence, and citizenship. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Eddie Bruce Jones. <laughs> Eddie, I admire you and your work a great deal, and I'm honored you made time for me and Busy Being Black. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you for being here. I admire you and the space you've created and the work you've been doing with UK Black Pride with Lady Phil, so it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start with a question that I've really come to love recently. How is your heart? Uh, it's a complicated question. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, obviously, given the times that we're in, uh, it's kind of triangulating between rage and really profound sense of empathy and solidarity with, um, with others and, and sadness. You know, it's, um, it's three really deep feelings, I think, that are always just, you know, at any given moment, uh, one is kind of really overwhelming. Um, but there's joy as well. It's just that that's a little more elusive. It's harder to grasp onto those moments of joy right now. I think a lot of queer, queer Black people are feeling overwhelmed at the moment. Um, and I think particularly this past month, I said to a friend um, that all these white people actually paying attention felt really stressful. <laughs> um, what would you say to queer Black people right now who are feeling maybe um, overwhelmed, tired? Well, I think it's, you know, we are, uh, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I know a lot of queer black, black folk that I know are leaders, uh, thought leaders or creative leaders or doing really 
important things. And, uh, and so this compounds that because then all of a sudden there's a pressure to do more or do something in a different way um, quickly to respond. And I think we have to be careful with ourselves because it's, uh, you know, it's a long, long road. And, um, and while there are things to do and everyone's working really hard, like all the queer black folk that I know are doing twice as much as probably they should or the laws of physics allow, um, we have to say no to things. So being at peace with saying no and, um, and really choosing what to do and how to spend our limited energy, I think is really important right now. Um, and not to feel guilty because I feel like people feel that they're holding this burden of keeping the world turning and, um, and setting things right. But I think we just need to be selective with what we're doing right now. Yeah. I felt I haven't released a new episode of the show since the 6th of June. And someone messaged saying, where's the new episode of the show? And I had been really, I didn't realize, but I had been really resistant to this idea that I had to, I felt like I had to be productive over the past three or four weeks, not only because it's Black Lives Matter and I have a platform and I'm trying to, you know, make a positive impact in the world, but also it's Pride Month. And then I started feeling like really resentful about it, right? Like we should, if anything, get this month off. But um, I don't know, that felt really selfish. Yeah, I mean, but it's, yeah, that's I think a natural reaction of people who have a lot to offer um, any given conversation, but especially now I think queer black folk have, um, have a whole lot to offer. But I think that's a position that a lot of us are put in, you know, as black people, as queer people, as queer black people, uh, it, to be put in the role of teacher somehow to kind of bring society along and teach people um, without compensation for it and, you know, at the expense of our own um, time and, and resources. So I think it's a natural reaction to want to do everything. Um, I, I want to talk about Black Lives Matter, but before we get there, I want to ask you a project that the filmmaker, I want to ask you something rather, that the filmmaker Shakif um, asks Black men in, this, in his project, Black Men Dream. Um, when did you become a Black man? Wow, it's an interesting question. I've never thought about it in those terms. Um, I mean, <clears throat> my immediate instinct when hearing that question is to, you know, just my journey and my learning process about being uh, privileged as a cis Black man. That, I think, makes me always a bit apprehensive about throwing myself with 100% of myself into that role as a black man, because it always comes with the downside of what the gender binary, I think, does to people in society, um, to gender non-conforming people, but we all buy into gender, um, the gender binary in, in some way, or we're socialized to do so. And I think that I'm, you know, in a journey of understanding the levels of privilege that that brings. But in terms of, because when that, that project that, that you mentioned um, is really interesting because I've, I've seen just a snippet of it online and it's quite powerful because people are reflecting on all kinds of things. And when I think about what it means to me to be a black man or when I first kind of came to the understanding that uh, being a black man would position me in society in a very certain way, I think I was 
quite young. Um, like many of us have to grow up pretty quickly to encounter the world and to survive it, negotiate it. But I remember being, you know, maybe 12 or so when my grandfather, who served in uh, the Korean War in, in the States, he told us that he was almost lynched. And I didn't know what lynching was. You know, he was the one who would you know, tell us these stories about America and how he experienced it, which was very different to what we were learning in school. And he said when he got back from the war, he was stationed somewhere in Kentucky and he went out to a bar one night and, um, you know, having served the country in, in a war, came back and the bar man wouldn't serve him. And then uh, a lot of the customers were irate that he was even in there. And, and then they pulled a, a truck around the side of the building with uh, ropes on it. So, like, it was a statement to him that he was, you know, he was about to get killed. And I mean, he's, he was very critical of the military after having been in it. But um, he said, you know, the only thing that saved him from being lynched were the friends that he made in, in, um, uh, in, this, in the service. Um, but it was a bittersweet moment for him because it wasn't that this was going to redeem him, that, his, that the military was going to save him. The, the takeaway there was that he was, he was very unsafe in, in the U.S., and learning that and then, you know, decades later, sitting next to him, watching Eric Garner get choked to death. That's where I was when I, you know, when that was broadcast in the news, I was on a visit home. And we were sitting there on the couch watching this. And I, I also reflected on me seeing myself as a black man through him and his experiences. And this, isn't, this is not an ahistorical experience of being a black man. So I can, I can only experience it through what my ancestors have all also experienced, which I think is a blessing in some ways because I can see things that, um, that I think are, are very relevant to the age we're living in. Um, and yeah. Like what? Well, you, I guess in some ways it's kind of that double consciousness that Du Bois talked about being able mm -hmm. to know and understand whiteness um, from a position of experience, but not only your own experiences, but those of your, your ancestors, knowing and relying on the information that they collected uh, in their own struggles. Um, and being able to, to understand how power situates itself. So realizing that, you know, these, the death of Eric Garner or um, of Mike Brown or, or Rakia Boyd, um, you know, the deaths that, that were being broadcast in the media at that time weren't anything new, uh, but that there was a continuity that, um, that was there. So that episode of my grandfather almost being lynched was something that was very present for me when I was watching Eric Garner sitting next to him. Mm. I mean, you've been working, teaching and writing about race, the law, state violence for a long time. What is your analysis of the recent, more recent uprisings in support of Black Lives? And what distinguishes them from the Black Lives Matter uprisings um, as they started in 2014? Uh, I think in, in some ways, you know, the, the organizing around Black Lives and um, in support of families who've lost people to police uh, brutality and institutional racism hasn't, hasn't stopped since 2014, you know, but the character, I think, and the emphasis of uh, these 
these present uprisings, I think, is different in, in a certain way that makes me, you know, I'm actually quite surprised, and I guess in a, in a, in a good way, that the discourse of um, abolition has, has come into the mainstream in a different way than it, it was there uh, a few years ago. It was there, but I think uh, now some of the popular traction that it has, um, you know, thanks to the organizers who are organizing the protests, but also to decades of organizing by groups like Critical Resistance and many women, Black women, who have been doing a lot of that work and um, a lot of the analysis um, for, for decades, um, like Ruth Gilmore and Beth Ritchie uh, and Angela Davis. And I think the fact that it's entered the mainstream makes me hopeful that the discussion has more transformative potential now than it could have afforded a few years ago. And it's not because the organizers are doing something, uh, well, I should say a few years ago, it wasn't a deficiency in the organization of these protests, but I think the, the way that it, it's kind of become a broader conversation has been, um, has used the traction of the prior protests in order to bring the discourse further. And so the, the, the vocabulary had been refined in a way that now it's able to be deployed and used really strategically from the beginning. Also, um, the emphasis on, on black women and black, black trans people, I think, while it's still not central and there's still kind of this male dominated narrative to um, policing deaths, I think the vocabulary had, had been kind of generated and there's a way in which now it has more traction, I think, thanks to organizations like African American Policy Forum and Kamu Crenshaw with the Say Her Name campaign that changed the narrative um, popularly uh, a bit from where it was years ago. Um, and it almost seems like at the beginning of Black Lives Matter, police brutality very much seemed like a black person's problem. Whereas this time around, it seems like people are beginning to see the interconnectedness of this violence, right? That the violence that is visited upon black people is enacted against many other people simultaneously in ways that are covert and overt. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's really interesting because I think there's always kind of this cycle where people somehow who have a platform like politicians in the US I'm thinking that say things that are just they just sound ridiculous like there's no such thing as structural racism or institutional racism and these kind of proclamations that we've dealt with problems through legislation uh, through the civil rights movement. I think I heard Mitch McConnell say something like, well, we, we ended slavery and we had a civil rights movement and we passed important legislation and now that's over. Mm -hmm. um, is such a ridiculous starting point for, for any conversation. It's just absurd. And I think things like, I'm just thinking along legal lines, like uh, more public awareness that there are ways in which the law in kind of, insipid ways that people don't actually realize until they dig, dig below the surface. Um, it's legal to, to kill people, uh, for the police to kill people and have a wide range of, of defenses. I mean, most notably this qualified immunity 
concept that I don't think a lot of people really appreciated even even back in 2014. I mean, organizers of protests knew about it um, and lawyers know about it, but the idea that police um, basically can violate civil rights as long as there's not a very clear legal case with identical facts that um, that prohibit it. Uh, meaning, yes. Yeah. Can you explain that for me and for listeners? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, it's the standing uh, law in the U.S. that if you are a police officer, you're protected by this um, by this doctrine called qualified immunity, which means that um, if you're in the line of duty, you kill someone, um, and usually there's you know there's inevitably going to be an argument as to why, uh, from police officer's perspective, why they were in fear of their lives or why they had to um, you know defend themselves because someone reached for their gun or any number of, of very easy defenses to, to articulate in law. Um, as long as there's not a clear case, uh, like a judgment, against using that type of force with identical fact pattern, um, so not just a case that seems to apply, but actually one with a fact pattern that's virtually identical, there is a defense um, that police can articulate, which is that they are immune from prosecution for the violation of those civil rights. But it's such a broad immunity that um, it's not surprising that police aren't prosecuted and sent to jail for killing people, um, but rather that's usually dealt with with some, you know, um, transfer to a different department or some form of leave or maybe getting fired. Um, the prosecution is very unlikely. And so Keir Starmer just yesterday, I think, um, kind of disparaged or dismissed as more accurate um, the Black Lives Matter movement as being something specific to the U.S. and specific to the murder of George Floyd. And it would seem that British people writ large are having a hard time understanding that that state violence is the same here in the, US, in the U.K. as it is in the U.S. How would you explain how state violence manifests itself in the UK versus the US? Well, I mean, uh, in terms of patterns, they're very similar. In fact, um, statistically, uh, the prison population is, is more overrepresented by, um, by black people than in the United States. Um, and people who die in custody in, in the UK, I mean, there's just, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, well now about six years ago, the Institute of Race Relations did a report on, um, on black people dying in police custody. And it showed that, you know, everyone who died, for people who died in policing situations or in police custody, there haven't been successful prosecutions against police that led to kind of accountability in a criminal sense against police, even when inquests have, um, have been done and showed that there's been a wrongful death. Um, so, I mean, and stop and search obviously disproportionately impacts um, black and brown communities in the UK. In the US, maybe, you know, so the difference, differences are the scale of the issue. Mm -hmm. The use of firearms by police in the United States is much more prevalent. Um, and there are lots of reasons, I'm sure, for uh, that we can, we can assume um, for that. I mean, the militarization of police in the United States is quite a dramatic thing. 
Um, but but it's clearly you know clearly the patterns are are very similar. So it's it's really also absurd to say that this is a U.S. issue. I mean, we could have there we could have definitely had a similar protests for the people who have died in custody in the in the U.K. from Sean Rigg to you know um, to Sarah Reed. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, you wrote in 2015 in the LA Review of Books, or you asked rather. How do we put on hold our critiques of the constant structural violence of the criminal justice system, including the prison industrial complex, while attempting to ensure that the lives of people of color are protected? Is it only the force of criminal sanctions that will keep police from killing us, or must there be something more sustainable? And can that something more wait until we begin to dismantle the prison of racism, or must the state's coercive violence be invoked now to prevent the everyday carnage that we experience at the hands of the police? In the five years since you penned that article and asked these questions, have you been able to answer these questions? Um, well, the short answer is no. Okay. <laughs> uh, because, well, and I guess the long answer is I think the questions won't go away until we have actually dismantled um, policing as we know it and the criminal justice system. So in some ways, we're always going to be struggling into kind of terrains at the same time. One is trying to get accountability from a system that invisibilizes black death. And on the other hand, trying to dismantle that system. And if the system is the only way that we currently have to um, provide accountability, so arresting and prosecuting and jailing officers to either send a message or to somehow um, apply the criminal justice system in a way that allows uh, some sense that justice has been done, there is a contradiction in that in a, in a basic sense. But in a strategic sense, I think that it's a, a political condition that we are uh, inevitably going to find ourselves in because things can't happen overnight. And the calls for accountability aren't necessarily completely uh, contradictory to a long-term vision or even a medium-term vision of abolishing the system itself. So it's kind of a question of strategy and balance. I think the, the question that I was able to answer, or I probably had the answer then when I wrote this thing, is that we can't wait um, for this something different. Uh, and that's why I think we are constantly operating in these different terrains with different, like, um, different nuances to how we envision accountability in maybe a short term and uh and a transformation in the long term yeah because we want to abolish prisons and the police right. <laughs> i want to pivot let's go to let's go back let's go to baby eddie <laughs> where were you born where did you grow up uh that's funny because my my family called me baby eddie growing up actually because <laughs> My dad is Ed was Edward, and my grandpa is also Edward. Um, but I'm Eddie, so I guess they wanted me to be a little different. Uh, so I grew up in Englewood, New Jersey, which is about 30 minutes outside of New York City. Um, so growing up, the city was New York City. And um, yeah, I grew up in a black neighborhood called Englewood, but uh, we moved around quite a lot. So. I lived in Teaneck, which is the neighboring town. I lived in Dumont, which is a predominantly white neighborhood um, in the same county. 
And then I lived in Bergenfield for high school, which was a very mixed, um, mixed neighborhood. And then you traveled to around the world, to Berlin, to London. You yeah. said um, in her pre-chat that I feel a different type of familiarity when I go to New York or New Jersey. Mm. And oddly, it's a dreamlike nostalgia. Can you speak more about that feeling? Mm. Yeah, so when I go back to New Jersey, um, you know, gentrification in Englewood is just on a, a level that I've seen rarely anywhere else. And I don't recognize a lot of, of the town. Uh, the whole downtown area, kind of the, the main street has been completely transformed. And now there are like residential luxury buildings there for people who are commuting to work in New York City. Um, the demographics of the neighborhood have changed and um, it doesn't seem like the same place I grew up in, but there are remnants of it there. Also, you know, I've lost people. I don't have a huge family. I have lots of cousins, um, but I don't have brothers and sisters and I lost my dad and my grandpa while I've been in Europe and, and my other grandpa and uncles. And um, so it's just a different place when I go back. And my mother, who I, who I lived with, um, was in Bergenfield, where I grew up, when I, when I left home at, at 17, and then, um, and then has moved about. So the places where my family is don't really hold memories that I can gain traction with. And it's been 20 years since I left the US, um, except for a year and a half I did in New York for law school. What, what precipitated your move 20 years ago? Well, it's, kind of, it's a bit random. I mean, when I was in college, I studied anthropology and African-American studies. So I was really into, you know, I did spoken word poetry and I was into literature, but I was also really interested in foreign languages. So I was studying Spanish and German. And I came across this book called uh, Faba Bekenden, which is showing our colors in, in English, the translation. Um, and it's basically a book written by black German women about German history. And it's kind of a reclamation of um, the authorship of German history from the lens of black women who are reflecting on their experiences and also German colonial history. And it was prefaced by Audre Lorde. Um, so she had spent time in Germany teaching and, and making these connections in Berlin. And I was like, okay, well, I have to go to Berlin, obviously, because now that I'm speaking German, this must be the reason that I uh, invested time in learning German. So I went there during college, and then right after college, I moved there. And um, yeah, and it's life-changing to move somewhere when you're 20, 21, and uh, to really discover the world through the lens of being, you know, being a foreigner, uh, trying to understand the social realities of being black in, in Germany <laughs> uh, 10 years after the wall, wall falls. Um, yeah, so I stayed there for, for quite a few years and then I moved to the, to the UK after that to um, yeah, pursue a legal career and, and then ultimately to wind up in academia. Um, at Birkbeck, alongside the long list of things that you, we, we talked about at the beginning of the show, alongside your managerial role as Deputy Dean, you teach Europe, European Union law, human rights equality law, and a course called Race, Law, and Literature, which you describe as your guilty pleasure. Why a guilty pleasure? Mm. 
Well, I, uh, I guess I shouldn't feel too guilty about it, but I get to teach a lot of books and authors that I really love uh, that aren't squarely within the legal discipline. So I, I should say that Birkbeck's a place where that's fully possible and it's not controversial that I'm doing that. I think at some law schools you'd be, um, you know, to have a course that's race law and literature that, you know, the, the core readings are Toni Morrison's short story, um, uh, Chimamanda Adichie, I read, uh, we read Derek Bell, who's a literary scholar who used storytelling as one of the principal methodologies um, in the early days of critical race theory. Sadia Hartman. So we're reading a lot of texts that are either literary texts or they're um, using analysis that is highly discursive around kind of the literature as a, as a discipline and not as many legal theory texts, but we're getting at legal theory through, um, through that literature. And what does that allow? Hmm. Like, how does that help shape how one might look at the law? Well, I think in some ways it helps us to grapple with what types of um, power relations the law uh, occupies and what, what the law uh, puts into motion when there are certain ways of establishing what constitutes legal knowledge, um, how law, the way that it's taught in a really conventional way mm -hmm. is, is taught in a way where we're, we're to expect that law and morality are somehow aligned or that law is the solution to social problems rather than potentially uh, another set of problems. Um, how law calls us into some uh, identity categories and then uses those categories uh, against us in certain ways. And also how law in the cases that are presented in a very conventional way, I'm not talking about legal theory that would question these things, but the way that we're taught law gives us um, a set of facts and we're supposed to look at the facts, not necessarily the history that has created those facts. And literature and, um, and other disciplines, but particularly literature, gives us a way of being a lot more imaginative with how we see the present and history as connected. So an example is we read Octavia Butler's Kindred, where the protagonist, the Black woman, is transported back into, um, into the days of slavery to save her great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-grandfather. He's a white man, right? He's a white man. <laughs> and, you know, she's, she's literally called back to save this person. And the commentary that that kind of, that suggests is this inextricable, um, inextricably linked, um, way of being in the world as someone who's kind of tied to that history in the present and the pain that that history causes in the present allows for us to understand her life and her lived experience as completely intertwined with that of not only her ancestors but of um, the, the country and, and the present that's been produced out of that, that history. And law isn't, doesn't allow for that kind of imagination. Um, but those who are serious about critiquing law's position in society and understanding kind of the moral imperatives for, for dealing with law, so let's say abolition movements, for example, um, 
need that imagination as a part of the mix. So that's, I think, what I'm trying to achieve with this course. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'm thinking actually of how um, Wayward Lives, Sadia Hartman, how that, um, I think she calls it, is it critical fabulation? Yeah. But that, she's, that she uses the law and census reports and um, neighborhood planning documents and arrest reports. And, and those are all kind of products of law, right? Like she, and I wonder how the students would then engage with law in a different way. So that's where my mind, you don't have to answer that question, but that's just where my mind is. And then she, this critical fabulation, I guess, happens in the, in the gaps, right? Where these black women, namely that she documents, the gaps they, they fell through because of the law. Yeah, yeah, completely. And the, the, the texture of like the society that's been produced out of, of the law has created situations where, um, where these black women are then trying to grapple on to, to, to something for survival, but also creating these other worlds. And the way that she describes these, these worlds requires using imaginative resources to, to make the world come to life. Because that's the other thing, the, the legal documents and the archival records don't really allow, or they don't, they don't make the texture apparent, or they don't regard the texture of people's everyday lives, so black women's everyday lives, as relevant enough to you know, come across. Uh, so there are ways that she uses those techniques to, to make us aware that those worlds and that thinking and that, that process of imagination existed for, for these women. Mm. There's so many questions. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so you're working on a number of personal projects, one of which is a book called Kala Pani. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kala Pani, Law, Imagination, and Colonial Indenture. Um, can you talk more about that and, and why it was important for you to explore, to write this book? Yeah, it's, so, um, so, Indentureship, colonial indentureship was, uh, like in the British context, was basically, and this is an oversimplification, but after the British um, uh, abolished slavery uh, in, in the sense that it stopped <laughs> the slave trade um, in British territories, um, in the 1830s, it immediately um, came up with this indenture system to fill the labor vacuum left by um, the abolition of slavery. And that meant uh, enlisting the, the labor of, of people of Asian descent that were already in British uh, colonies. So Northern Indian and also um, Chinese workers. And so they were, they're basically made to, in some cases coerced to, and in most cases, um, kind of given these contracts without having been explained exactly what the contracts uh, implied, but the contracts were, were for doing labor in some other place. So a lot of people didn't know where they were going, but they were going to Mauritius, they were going to Jamaica, to Trinidad, to St. Lucia, uh, to Fiji. Um, and they were to, to do work, agricultural work, and uh, the idea was that they'd go for a period of five years. And after five years, they'd be free from that contract. Uh, and after 10 years, they'd get a return journey. Um, and they could, come, they could earn money and come back to, to India or to, to, to China. 
And what ended up happening is a lot of people were brought somewhere. Um, they were living on plantations in really dire conditions. They had uh, labor contracts that were also um, criminal law contracts. So if they left the plantations, they would be penalized um, with fines and sometimes with uh, imprisonment. There were immigration related and um, family law related aspects of these contracts as well. So their lives were really determined by the relationship they had with their employers. And, and that went on between the 18, really from the 1840s up until about 1917. And uh, about a million um, South Asians and Chinese were brought to the various parts of the British Empire. So my entree to this history was through my own family history. So my mom's family is predominantly um, uh, Indo-Jamaican. And though my family, my Jamaican side of my family is, is very mixed in terms of background because that's what Caribbean families are like. Uh, you know, my grandpa and my grandma both had this heritage. And so my grandfather, right before he passed away in 2004, he told me to learn Hindi. And I just was kind of like, no, that's not happening. I don't have time for that. Uh, but then he passed away in 2005 and I, I thought, yeah, I probably should invest some time. And actually I hadn't thought about having Indian heritage at all because it didn't really feature in my sense of who I was. You know, I knew I was, I was black. I knew I had Jamaican heritage, but that wasn't something I wanted to spend time looking into. But the more I engaged with the history and the more that I started to talk to cousins and relatives who were interested, um, the more I became really interested in knowing precisely the dimensions of coloniality in producing kind of our own family history. Um, and that's something I think for both as an African-American and as an Indo-Jamaican, I think both of those histories and the wading through the colonial kind of muck to try to figure out what my ancestors experienced um, is really important. So, yeah. That collision is always so interesting to me that mm -hmm. <laughs> I, always, I, I often describe my mixed raceness, right? My mom's white British, my dad's African-American as a collision, right? And often to, and not a happy one, right? Like a, it ends up becoming this conflict. Um, but within us, right, we embody all these different histories and journeys and violences. Mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so right. And I think growing up, I wasn't, you know, part of me just wasn't as interested as a kid in, in all the specificity. But then I realized also, I mean, because I did know that we had, there was my, my grandma, is completely Indian and it was difficult for me to understand the politics of it but I did have a sense that if I were to talk about it or embrace it in, in too uh, enthusiastic a way that I think I would be um, seen to not want to be black in some way because oh, I think yeah. that, and that's a dimension I think that's it's fair enough in some ways that um, there's a there's a concern about not wanting to embrace blackness even though blackness is a, a range of different things there's so many ways to be black and to be black and doesn't mean that you're not black but i think that was a concern of mine and, and a reason why i didn't jump into wanting to know just as much about my indian heritage as my african uh, heritage 
But then this book kind of blossomed. I mean, this book project is partly because I was doing ancestral research. You know, I realized that our family was on the same plantation for three generations, um, cutting sugarcane in Clarendon, Jamaica, and, uh, and kind of getting to grips with the language, you know, getting a bit better at Hindi, although my Hindi is really quite poor. And, um, and then going to, you know, going to the Jamaican archives, going to India, to Calcutta, to the archives of West Bengal and wading through the documents, a lot of the questions that I think I'm inspired to think about through Saidiya Hartman's work of what were their everyday lives like? How would they have understood what was happening to them? How does the archive hide these, um, hide the centrality of state violence in the way that it reports about uh, the deaths of the, the workers? Um, where are the names in the archive? Why are the archives under-resourced uh, today? So all of those are part of the colonial story, I think, that, that I want to unpack in this work. So, and since 2008, another one of your many projects, um, you've been working alongside activists, community organizers, and lawyers to help clarify and examine the circumstances surrounding the death of Ori Jallo. Can you give us some background on Ori and what you're trying to uncover there? Yeah. So Ori Jallo was uh, a man who was um, basically apprehended by police, um, not doing very much uh, once the police got there. It was the middle of the night in 2005 in a small city in former East Germany, Dessau. And <clears throat> the, uh, some city workers who were sweeping the streets um, called the police and said that there was this man who was asking them to use their cell phone to make a call and kind of bothering them. And the police came, they arrested him, they brought him to the station. And, um, and after that, it's the police's story is all we have to go on. They, um, but what we do know is he was chained by his wrists and his ankles to a fireproof mattress in the police cell um, really early in that morning. And then by noon, he was burned to death on the mattress. And so that happened in 2005. Uh, in 2007, there was a trial where the police were acquitted, partly because the, the, the stories that they were giving on the stand were inconsistent and there was no way to really rule. So the judge threw it out and there was a retrial. And in the retrial, the police were, um, were fined for negligence because they didn't reach him in time to save him. So. I mean, the issue there is that the prosecution didn't bring a charge which allowed the lawyers to ask a question about how he died. The assumption the prosecutor made was that he committed suicide. And then uh, from there, the only charge against police could have been that they didn't help him. Um, they didn't get to him in time to save him. But the evidence points in a different direction. So that's that, I think, is... Um, all of the evidentiary issues, I think, were only available, all the evidentiary arguments to make were only available because activists were working with the family members and over you know, a decade and a half mm. have pushed for this evidence to come to light, have done their own um, fire tests, have, uh, have uncovered inconsistencies in the presentation of the evidence, and have asked the right questions. 
Um, and so what's the, what's the hope for the outcome of this work? So I think part of it is the wider discussion revealing the, the need to have discussion at all about institutional racism, about policing violence, and about the lack of accountability for um, in death and custody cases in, in Germany. In Germany, you can't bring a civil um, case if, someone, if, you, if someone's died in custody, like you can in the UK. You can only, um, you can only rely on the prosecutor to bring charges. Uh, so there's the wider discussion, and then the, the, the narrower discussion, which has big implications, is on this particular case to, to show all of the inconsistencies that were made in, in the legal handling of the case, to maybe bring it to the European Court of Human Rights, to have them make a determination on the violation of his human rights, but really also to show the public that there's a serious problem with the way that these cases are handled in Germany uh, under law, um, and that the Jallo case really is kind of a watershed case for, for showing that. So the single case really is important in this, in this instance, and there have been other similar cases where the police haven't been held accountable that this could help to bolster. And so is it this work on the Jallo case that has led you to the team um, writing race and law in Europe? Partly, yeah. I mean, so my, my role in that team is to look at um, the treatment of, of Black people across Europe and also to, to kind of have an eye out for patterns and, uh, in, uh, that affect other communities. So the team is four of us and we all have expertise in different parts of Europe. And we're looking at judgments that haven't necessarily reached the highest courts in the land or the European courts. So for listeners, Race and Law in Europe is the first and only resource to critically analyze case law, legislative provisions, scholarly literature, and sociopolitical debates from across Europe with the aim of providing a theoretically rich framework for understanding race in the European legal systems. Yeah, it sounds like a big claim. <laughs> and I <Yeah>. think... <laughs> in a lot of ways. And it is, uh, so far as we, we know, the first book that really gets into looking at the local jurisdiction, uh, sorry, the local level cases. So national cases um, usually make headlines. So the cases that reach the final court in any country and European cases are, are well known to most scholars who look at race in Europe. But what happens in the local languages at the courts of first instance is not readily available across Europe. So it's not usually used in any comparison of how race is treated across Europe. Um, and that's important because there are a lot of cases that don't see the light of day because they're, uh, you know, they're in these, these uh, lower courts. Lots of cases are settled. And there are also issues that don't make it before a court. And we're trying to bring all of that together to give um, a richer sense of how race is apprehended as a concept within the legal systems of various countries in Europe. And so what do you think it says about the European project that this type of work hasn't been done? Mm. Or, I think, uh, yeah. I think using race as an analytical lens isn't uh, as salient in Europe as it should be, because I think in a lot of places in Europe, there's an assumption that race is an American problem or that race is an outdated format for thinking about difference um, or that race 
should be actively prohibited, like in France, where there's a criminal prohibition on the use of the concept of the term race. So, <clears throat> so this, but at the same time, there are European laws that require some evaluation of, of race and racism, and they, out, they prohibit it. So there, there's a way in which race is being used by default in some way in all European countries, but it's done so differently. And at the same time, there's not a con concentrated attention given to how race is being used in a lot of these countries. It's just, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it's used ineffectively and it's not helping to serve um, just, it's not used towards justice for the communities that are experiencing racism. So I think race is demoted in, in Europe. And so is this then like intersectionality, right? There was no way to account for a black woman's experience within the law. Mm -hmm. And so therefore no legal protections could be afforded her mm -hmm. uh, or black women. I mean, is that what's happening with race in Europe? Is that black, pe black people, people of color are not getting the justice they deserve because there isn't the, the language or the um, frameworks for talking about race? or in pursuing justice in this way? Hmm, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter of there not being, like you said, the language, the frameworks, the data in a lot of cases um, to actually even represent what's happening in terms of patterns of discrimination, uh, whether it's policing or housing. There's, um, so there's a lack of traction that discussions on racism have in European spaces for, for these reasons. And it's not only in the legal domain, but it's in the social domain. And so lawyers, you know, lawyers are people and they're getting their ideas about where and when race applies also from the social um, environment. And I think that's a, you know, that's something that hopefully we can reveal by looking both at cases and at social issues. Um, when do you sleep? <laughs> yeah, it's... Working from home, I mean, I'm sure you can relate as well. It's kind of the workday just blends right into the evening. It's pretty... I've been enjoying reparations naps, I call them, in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I've been trying to think about you, Eddie, you know, in, through these three projects in particular that you're working on. And you haven't... It seems to me that these three projects grapple with a deeper, more nuanced exploration of diasporan identity. But I think that might be a reach, and because you don't describe the projects as such, but it occurs to me that that you embody, um, whether it's through Kalapani or the work for Jello, you're trying to reveal people, right? You're trying to create a connection, to create a sense of place-making, sense-making. A pursuit for understanding. And I feel like that's a very diasporan experience. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So Saidia Hartman says this thing in Lose Your Mother, in her book, Lose Your Mother, where she goes to Ghana um, and she engages with her own sense of um, what it means to have gone, kind of gone back to Africa and, uh, and to engage with the history. And in talking to people, she describes this, this stranger Ness, this kind of she is a stranger in, in some ways and I feel that way sometimes probably not to you know not in the same way as she's describing in that book but I feel like I can't necessarily speak for New Jerseyans 
right now. You know, I haven't lived there in 20 years. I don't really know what's happening, but I have a sense of what's happening in the U.S. And I think I can make, uh, I can engage in that way. I can't speak for Black British people or Black Germans, even though that's where I spent most of the last 20 years. But there's still a position that I have vis-a-vis my Blackness in this space and a way to be productive and helpful and have conversations that are about Black togetherness. And that term, I've kind of, I think about um, this Barbie Asante, who's a, uh, an incredible artist here in, in, uh, in London, is she had an event called Black Togetherness. And it was about how are we, um, how do we occupy space together and how do we think about togetherness as mm-hmm. Black people from different places. And yeah, I think the work that I try to do, I try not to represent um, or to take the voice of people who are rooted to a certain place, because I think I have a different relationship to place um, at this point in my life than, than people who would feel more comfortable articulating themselves through that sense of place. But being a part of the diaspora, I think I'm much more connected to um, and I think all of the work that I do that has that reflexive aspect to it is framed in a way that that makes clear that I'm not speaking for black Germans or, mm. or Jamaicans even, um, but that I'm sort of at a tangent relating through my diasporic sense of identity. Because yeah, I thought the breadth of your work is so impressive. It's so interesting, right? And there's from Indo-Jamaicans to uh, racing across Europe to race line literature in London at Birkbeck. I mean, it's, I, I really admire that what, uh, what I'm seeing in my head is like a net <laughs> right? like a, with everything kind of linking to the next thing. I don't know if that's actually a net, but that we're all connected in these ways, right? And that these, these journeys, these travels that we all are on to understand ourselves and our histories better. And within this kind of current socio-political moment, I'm just really drawn to just the scope of your work and how I think it, it's all linked. Mm. Thank you so much for saying that. I, sometimes I feel like I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none because I'm, I'm doing work that's really dispersed in methodologically and in terms of place. And, but, um, but I think it's the way that I can best contribute by, by really defining really narrowly where I'm intervening uh, and not overstating my ability to to kind of make those, uh, yeah, make broader interventions. I mean, that's circular, but. Um, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, because that's it. So it's finding your role within the larger ecosystem of change. Mm. Um, we have to about time. Okay. <clears throat> Black queer theorists like Kathy J. Cohen and E. Patrick Johnson. Mm. Um, have suggested that our queer politics are not really queer if we're only fighting for other queer people explicitly, and not to mention the class differences between all of them, Um, and that we have to look beyond the borders of our own communities to really understand how we're all connected. How does your queerness um, impact your work? And maybe that's a leading question. It might not impact it at all. (laughs) Maybe a better question is, how do you understand your queerness in your work? Um, I think, I mean, this may be too general, but I think it, uh, it means that I'm always questioning, uh, I'm always questioning even my own assumptions. So I'm very self-critical in, in my work. And sometimes that doesn't translate to the page, uh, partly because it, it makes the work 
seem more like a dialogue I'm having with myself and I don't want the reader to have to then wade through all of this, you know, this inner monologue, but I try to make my work as, as reflexive as, as possible. And it sometimes doesn't emerge as uh, relating to questions of sexuality necessarily. Although I feel like there is this tension. Um, I had a conversation with a colleague once about uh, calling something queer or using queer theory, but not talking about sexuality or the politics of sexuality um, in a moment where it's really important to do that, to talk about sexuality and about um, gender and particularly about, um, about the gender binary is something that's politically a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to justify not bringing sexuality into um, the politics, at least, of the work. And I try to make sure that I'm, I'm attuned to, um, to what queer methodologies, so methodologies of looking across different issues, can bring to, um, to the work, or at least how I teach, or how I, how I write, or how I practice. Um, there's a book by Dean Spade, Normal Life, which uh, talks about trans politics. And the whole introduction is this really brilliant way of looking at um, political movements as needing to kind of transcend their own boundaries and to intermingle, which is of course kind of a call to Audre Lorde and there's no hierarchy to oppression and, and, black, um, and black feminist thought. But then to use that in the, in the legal sense and to do what I think Spade does with it, which is to talk about how that mandates that we be concerned as queer people with um, decarceration and with abolition, which isn't necessarily only a queer issue, but everything, all issues affect queer people, but it's to be concerned with them also because people of color are disproportionately impacted by them. And also because if we think about the most vulnerable in society and fix society for them, then it, society gets better for everyone anyway. So that's, as an approach, I think, one that stems from Black feminist thought, but also from, from queer theorists um, uh, who have kind of generated this, this default to looking across um, single-issue politics. Mm. E. Patrick Johnson has had a singular impact on my thinking, mm. both through the production of his, of his own work and his performance, but his convening, I'm looking at No Tea, No Shade and Black Queer Studies right now, but like, and like this convening of Black queer theorists and academics has been so edifying. Like I, I was on a fire when I read that passage from Kathy J. Cohen and Punk's Bull, Punk's Bull Daggers and Welfare Queens. Mm. Um, Asking, you know, if, if you're if you're more, and I'm paraphrasing, but if you're aligning yourself with a cis white affluent gay man, but not a presumably heterosexual black woman on welfare, then your politics are misaligned because black women's sexuality, heterosexual or queer, is always read as deviant, right? And I was like, ah, <laughs> you know, you're just like, that's of course it is. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and that's I think. <laughs> It's also, I remember reading uh, Mapping the Margins by Kimberly Crenshaw and her idea of political intersectionality and the, the, the kind of the choice that Black women um, are, are forced to make in terms of, on one hand, uh, fighting against um, racism, 
and that racism sometimes articulates itself as you know making black men into these predators, ultraviolent um, perpetrators, and also invisible invisibilizing black women's stories. And then on the other hand, uh, fighting against um, uh, violence against women. And how to negotiate those things doesn't require that we choose a side, but it's always doing those things at the same time and being aware of that negotiation is, is really important. Um, and that also goes for having solidarity and actually mobilizing action on behalf of communities that we're not a part of. Mm. I'm thinking of Pro Professor Caritha Mitchell's essay about um, the connection between lynching then and anti-LGBTQ violence now, and that of the five um, similarities between both of those violences is the sexualized nature of um, both racist violence and LGBT, anti-LGBT violence. Mm. See, it's mm. all connected, right? Mm -hmm. So we're almost out of time. I mean, we are, we are out of time. <laughs> um, to close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? Right, I knew that question was coming. Um, so I listened to this show. The, I, I think for me, it's, it's something that I probably hope for because of its potential. And that's the, the space to breathe and maneuver so that we can make full use of our imagination. And that's something that I've taken from, um, from Toni Morrison, who had that speech uh, where she talked about imagination being kind of more important than the rage that we feel or maybe not more important but uh but really powerful like kind of a, a really a core of our power but if we're if you know people don't stop killing us then we can't use the full force of our imagination if we're distracted with having to unpack the these systems so i think I hope for a time and space to be able to use our full imaginations. Eddie Bruce Jones is a legal academic and anthropologist based in London. His research and writing focuses on racism, migration, sexuality, colonialism, state violence, and citizenship. You'll find links to his work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass, busy-being-black beats. Ashe. Ashe.